is from Mark 15, 16 to 39. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by held insult at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Well, thank you again for the privilege of getting to speak to you this afternoon on the crucifixion. I've entitled this message, Perspectives on God on the Cross. And some time ago, I was speaking with the CEO of a well-respected charity. And he told me that the job of leadership is to see reality as it actually is. And then secondly, to be able to see the reality that you want to or that you ought to get to. And then thirdly, to connect the dots. And it's interesting to me, looking back, that I assumed that the challenge would be in the second and in third, if you like, the role of vision and the role of strategy, where in fact it's the first. The ability to see 
reality, to encounter truth as it really is, and not simply truth in our own making and truth in our own image, that is not only the most challenging, but the most rare in the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. You'll be aware that we have the dubious acclaim of being the hashtag my truth generation. The Urban Dictionary defined my truth as pretentious substitute for non-negotiable personal opinion. Not really the most flattering byline for a generation. And it seems to me that having refused the challenge of an absolute truth for half a century and more, we've bought into philosophies that have told us there's no such thing as truth or that truth is relative no matter how contradictory these philosophies. We are reduced as a result to a world of my truth and your truth rather than the truth. And we are as a, gener- as a result a generation in danger of losing our grip on Reality, And I want to come back to the sentiments of my wise friend. Unless we can really see and encounter reality for what it actually is and allow it to challenge and to shape us, then every vision, every strategy will be ultimately built on false premises and therefore will be flawed and fail. We've just had a passage read to us from the Gospel of Mark. I've been reading this passage and asking a question, maybe the most significant question that any human being can ask. What is the truth? What is the reality about Jesus of Nazareth on the cross? And what are the ramifications of that reality for us? If there was ever a document in antiquity to which the hashtag my truth and its related themes would apply, it would be the Gospel of Mark. He takes such pains to give us the various perspectives, the various vantage points of the players in the mix, and he hardly ever breaks the narrative to interject with the interpretive voice of an author. Rather, he's inviting all the time the reader, the listener, to engage, to investigate, to leave aside their assumptions and their presumptions, and ultimately, if they are genuine seekers of truth, and if they dare, to step into the true reality, a reality not of our own making, and to be awed by an expanding vista. And I want to mention just three individuals or groups that are mentioned in the text and their vantage point, their truth, if you like, in the mix. Before I look to see whether there are any clues in the passage that might speak to us about the truth and what that might mean for us. Firstly, I'm struck not actually by the people who are mentioned in the text, but by those who are not. Regardless of your faith persuasion, it's a fact that the crucifixion is one of the defining events of human history. And yet, of course, there were people living at the time who completely missed that point. They were unaware of the significance of the events that were unfolding around them. Where are they? The people who didn't even read the times enough to understand that this was an event worth engaging with. No doubt they were busy with other things, possibly important, meaningful things. No doubt they had good reasons to be elsewhere. Perhaps they were even deeply religious people. We're told that it was the preparation day before the Sabbath. They would have been busy with their rituals. Nevertheless, regardless of the excuses or lack thereof, they lived through one of the most significant events of human history and missed it. 
And the question that strikes me is that, is it possible that some of us are living in the same conceptual landscape? Is it possible that some of us are doing the very same things, perhaps for even religiously devout people, churchgoers, rule keepers, culturally Christian? But we've never really engaged with the significance of the crucifixion. We've never really engaged with the God on the cross and what he offers and what he demands. And the first invitation of this text is simply engage. Engage with this text. Engage with the man on the cross and his claims. Whether you've been a Christian for as far back as you can remember or whether you come to the Christian faith, maybe skeptical, even hostile. Do not let any of the ramifications of Jesus Christ, God on the cross, pass you by. Secondly, those who were present and then those who were not present and then it's not rocket science, those who were. When you're reading the text, it becomes quickly very obvious that to have some kind of outward interaction with an event is not the same thing as engaging with it. The interaction of the soldiers with Jesus is one of just mindless mocking and abuse. They do not even feign an interest. There's no pretense even of a genuine engagement. We don't need to search far in today's society to see people who fall into that category, who treat the claims of the Christian faith as something of a similar disdain. It's become so commonplace we hardly even notice anymore. But I want to suggest that these are not people who earn our respect. Much more intriguing, though, is others who have the same response in effect, but they hide it in the veneer of reasonableness, rationality, maybe even playing the role of public defenders of the masses. It's a pretense of an interaction that shows itself false. They do not want the claims of Jesus to prove true. They do not want to bow the knee to someone demonstrably greater than themselves, and they never actually engage. It's interesting to me that you can be anywhere on the spectrum from the deeply religious to the deeply irreligious and play this game. In our generation, maybe our minds might go immediately to something like some of the faces of the new atheism, as it's called. But in this passage, it's the religious elite who play the part, and they give themselves away. Mark records their comments. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let him come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And we standing as outside observers to the text are caught in the fork in the road. Do we also join the ranks of those who look up at the God on the cross and say, yes, give us some evidence. If we saw a sign, we would finally, truly believe and we would act accordingly. In the ilk of Bertrand Russell, who, when he was asked what it would happen if he did find himself facing God on Judgment Day, he famously replied, Not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Mark gives us the subtlest of clues that there is another narrative, another interpretive lens that might be more appropriate. The theme of seeing and believing is a theme that's interwoven throughout the Gospels. They claim that if there was a sign, they would see, and in seeing, believe. But a great irony emerges. 
Those who read the Gospels for themselves would know that there are multiple miracles, none of which the Pharisees dispute. They never once question the authenticity of the blind man seeing, the paralyzed man walking, the recordings of the dead man Lazarus who came back to the life, the sick being healed. They never once question the authority of the way that Jesus taught the crowds and the electrifying nature of his life and ministry. And yet, time and time again, rather than believing on the basis of what their eyes have in fact seen, they find complex alternative interpretive lenses through which to justify their lack of belief. Eventually, they outright ask Jesus for a sign to prove that he is God. And perhaps in one of the most misremembered texts of the New Testament, Jesus tells them that no sign will be given them. And that's the part that we remember. But he immediately goes on to say, except the sign of Jonah. Three days in the pit of the whale and then brought out to life again. And he makes clear that he's referencing his own death, and three days later, the resurrection. In other words, the greatest of all possible signs that could be given is going to be given them. And here in these verses in Mark, that very sign is being played out before their eyes, and still they do not actually see, and they do not believe. And the implicit question here is, what does it take to see? Do we sometimes think that if we really finally saw some kind of supernatural sign, we would really and truly believe. Modern psychology and sociology tells us what's implicit in the text here, that very often we see what we want to see, and that we're masterful at creating alternative interpretations and alternative realities. What do we see when we look at the man on the cross? What do we want to see? And I've been asking myself the question, am I a genuine explorer? Am I a genuine seeker as I come to the cross? Do I dare engage with it afresh even today and in this Easter season and allow its ramifications to shape my life? Viewpoint after viewpoint, Mark takes us through the crowd. And then the final viewpoint in our reading, the centurion, as he stands in front of Jesus, and that wonderful play on words, seeing and believing. We've heard the insincerity of one group claiming that if there was something to see, they would believe. Now we're told that the centurion saw how Jesus died, and he becomes the first at the scene to affirm his belief. Surely, this man is the Son of God. And I'm moved by the fact that any person, no matter what they've done, no matter how far, metaphorically speaking, from Jesus they stand, this is the soldier overseeing the crucifixion, no less, is invited to engage, invited to look, invited to see, and in so doing, to discover a stunning reality. And here we come quite literally to the crux of the issue. What is the substance of the reality that's being unveiled? Well, there's a clue. It's just one line. Mark's offering to us of a window into a greater vista. He tells us that after Jesus breathed his last and died, 
the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Here's the reality. There is a great divide between God and humanity. But it wasn't always so. We were created for an unfettered breadth and depth of relationship with God, but we turned our backs on God and forfeited that freedom, forfeited that unhindered relationship. The curtain was the physical symbol of that divide, separating the holy of holies, where the very presence of God was said to dwell, from the outer courts where men and women could freely access. Now all who wanted to come in had to go through a complex sacrificial system to have any form of connection with God, to account for the guilt and to bridge the gap. But the curtain was the ever-present reminder that this could only be done in very limited ways. And we know that just once a year, the high priest, having made a sacrifice to atone for the guilt of the people, went into the Holy of Holies as their representatives, into the very presence of God. Imagine the crowd, the hushed silence. They're waiting, they're watching, they're standing on the outside, always from the outside. They can never actually enter in for themselves. That freedom, the beauty, the mystery, the amazing, wonderful glory of God, the presence, it's always one step removed. But throughout the ages, this very God tells them that all of the system is just a symbol, it's just a shadow, the sacrifices, just a shadow of something real, something that really does have substance, something that will come and that will tear apart that divide forever. Jesus Christ, on the cross, just as he claimed, became at once for all the sacrifice for humankind, so that on looking to him, our guilt could be atoned for and our connection to God restored. The curtain torn in two, from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, as a human being might tear it, in recognition of the fact that this was not a job that a man could do. No man could work their way back up to God, but that God himself had made a way. When we take the sacrament symbolizing these very events, the death of Jesus, the giving of his body, the pouring out of his blood, we call it communion. This is no coincidence. Because the death of Jesus achieved exactly that. The invitation to and the possibility of communion with God. And as I bring this talk to a close, here it is. The ultimate interwoven invitation of the Gospel of Mark. All who want to leave aside their disconnected, fragmented, small, constrained, at times crippling, self-made realities for a greater, broader vista, not of our own making, an exchange of our truth for the truth. All who want to know God, the adventure of relationship with this thrilling, creative, adventurous God who made us, loves us, knows us. 
or who want to come in from the outside, or who want true communion, can enter in because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Now, I just want to give just a few moments of silence for each of us to respond however we might want to respond. It may be that you've thought of yourself as a Christian, but actually you're aware you're culturally Christian, but you've never had this communion, and you'd like to express to God that you would want to experience something of that. Or it might be that the cross is very precious to you because you know what it is to commune with God, and you just want to express your gratitude to God. Wherever you are on the spectrum, I'm just going to give us a few moments and then I'll pray for us to respond in our own hearts and share our hearts with God. Father, we come to you this afternoon, the God on the cross, the God who did not wait for us to make our own way back to you, but made a way yourself. The God who became once for all the sacrifice for humankind, that the curtain might be torn into the divide overcome and communion made possible. And I pray for each of us, for those of us who want that communion, that even today would be another step, another closeness, another step along the way, a deeper, fuller, more real, more rich relationship. And I pray that as we increasingly exchange our truths for the truth, that you would increasingly expand our vista, the horizons of what we can see, and in seeing, we might truly believe. Amen.